One of my earliest memories of graduation and of church actually is around first or second grade uh, in Sunday school with this sweet saint of a woman named Vera North. Uh, she was the bomb of a Sunday school teacher, and here's why. She had, and now again, first and second graders, she had a sandbox in her Sunday school classroom. Just let that sink in for just a second. She had a sandbox in the classroom of her Sunday school. There's not many churches that would allow that to happen, right? So I remember I would rush into church and I would run down the stairs because I wanted to get there first because there were treasures that awaited me in that sandbox. And one of those treasures was a Noah's Ark playset. And I'm not talking about like the little tykes safe for kids, like chunky little figures with no sharp edges and you can't swallow anything type of playset. Someone, I don't know who, had built a wooden Noah's Ark and then someone else had gathered all of these little pairs of animals, many of which were really small and easily, you could choke on these, right? Like penguins this big, right? And so this was amazing. Whoever built this thing with this mismatched menagerie of animals that would all just conveniently fit inside this little ark. But I was there for the rhinos. I'm just going to be honest. Because the rhinos were awesome. Out of all the animals, they were the best painted. This may be where I fell in love with the rhino as an animal. But I remember sometimes I would even... Just tell you my secret, I would bury those in the corner of the sandbox so that I could come back next week and dig them up. And sometimes they were there, but somebody I think caught on at some point, and so that didn't happen anymore. So you probably already know the story of Noah's Ark. How many of you have heard the story of Noah's Ark before? Just taking us the informal survey. Okay, most of you have. Um, that's what we think of, isn't it? When we think of the story of Noah's Ark, we think of all the cute cartoon animals singing their little song as the boats go do 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 on the waves, like cruising, cruising around in the storm. Maybe with the giraffes and their heads poking out the windows, looking around. Or if you were using kind of an edgy uh, kids' curriculum, you might even have one of Noah's son's wives standing next to the animal pen with a broom holding her nose, right? If you were edgy. That's, those are the things that we think about when, we, when it comes to Noah's Ark. Uh, but if you stop to consider what the story is really about, it's not so harmless of a story, is it? I mean, we are talking about near global extinction of life in this story. And, you know, we you know, gloss over, we make it a kid's story, we make it about the animals and all that stuff is fine. But the truth of the matter is, you have in the story an angry, all-powerful God decides to wipe out everything with the exception of one man and his family and a small collection of wildlife. Millions of people die. <laughs> Millions of animals die. Not exactly a cute story. Sorry to bring you down if that did. I'm, you know, we just celebrated all this amazing stuff. But it's, it's true, right? But here's the deal, and this is what I want to get at today. This story has a lot to say about our human condition. It acknowledges some truths, right? It acknowledges this common origin of all human beings, teaching that we're all part of one large family. It acknowledges humankind's fragile place in the scheme of things, and that we are one of many species, and that extinction is a very real possibility for us. And even if you just look at the fossil record, I'm not going to get into all the science stuff because we are limited on our time today, but even if you look at just all the creatures that have lived before us and have met their untimely demise, vanishing from the earth, there are more of those creatures than there are different species alive now. 
which is interesting to think about. So here's my point. The family of man and woman, we are vulnerable. We are vulnerable. Uh, We could be obliterated in any moment, again, trying to cheer you up, uh, by flood or disease, climate change, meteorites, nuclear war, any number of apocalyptic nightmares that might usher into the end of the world that we just know it. And if you want to know what those are, you can watch any Hollywood movie recently because they seem to fixate on it. Hollywood loves those stories. So here's, here's where I'm going. From the perspective of the Bible, specifically of the Torah at this point, we are at the mercy of God. And that's actually what the story of Noah is about. The story of Noah is about God's mercy. And so last week we talked about the creator of the universe. He comes in close and he sculpts and he makes and he creates people. And then there's heartbreak that enters the story because humankind chooses their own way instead of God's way. And so the resulting loss was great, of course. Adam and Eve, they have two sons. One of them, Abel, is murdered by the other Cain. And so he's exiled. So they lose both of their children in that moment. And then we reflected on how that heartbreak that Adam and Eve felt had a lot in common with the heartbreak that God felt as his creation turned away from him. Losing that intimacy that he had created those beings for, right? As a result of that sin. But here's the good news. God's plan didn't change. He still intends to be with us. And so that hope continues in our story when Adam and Eve have another son and they name him Seth. And so we're going to fast forward a little bit. Seth has a son who was also born. He was called Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So it seems like the story is going in a great direction at this point. And the narrative in Genesis starts to trace this divergent path where you have the godly family tree of Seth and then you have the increasingly evil and corrupt line of Cain and his ancestors. Seth's arrival is this allusion to that offspring that would crush the head of the serpent that we mentioned back in Genesis 3.15. So time passes and Seth and Cain's lines continue to propagate as does evil. And there's this tipping point in Genesis 4.24, that's right, 4.24, where one of Cain's descendants, a guy aptly named Lamech, right? (laughs) Chooses a life of vengeance. And he actually refers back to Cain's vengeance and says, oh, you want to see vengeance? Let me show you. And this all of a sudden leads to this downward spiral of increasing evil among humans, among people. And that takes us up to Genesis 6, verse 5. So the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I think it's really easy to get caught up in what seems like this negative situation here, the magnitude of the judgment that the Lord pronounces on creation. But I think we have to remind ourselves again that the Bible is God's story and how he is revealed to humanity. And so the creator decides in this moment that his creation has taken a disappointing turn. But I want you to notice something back here at this verse at the very beginning. The Lord saw, right? The Lord saw, that's how it starts, Genesis 6, 5. What this is trying to say to us, I think it's important and this is encouraging, especially in this situation, but also for us. God looks upon the earth. He's watching, he's paying attention. He's not some distant entity that's way out here in the cosmos who just kind of winds the earth up and then lets it go to see what happens, right? He's actually involved. 
He's close. That's always been his desire. He's concerned for his creation. He's like a father that observes the behavior of his children. He's like a king, right? Taking note of how the events are unfolding within his kingdom. And so when a father, a good father, sees his children involved in self-destructive behaviors, what happens? He grieves them, right? If a king notices that his subjects are living in open rebellion against him, what happens? He's angered by that and it moves him to take action. So God looks upon the earth. He sees his children. He sees his subjects. And he sees that the earth is flooded with evil. Like it's everywhere. He was saddened to see this rampant wickedness in his creations as they turned on each other in violence and greed and lust and robbery. And so mankind continues to move further away from him instead of people aligning their lives and really mankind aligning his kingdom with God's kingdom. That's the problem here. And so it reaches this point where it says that every intention and thought of mankind's heart was evil. And I would suggest to you that times were actually worse then than they are now. Because as we look at mankind, we may say, wow, things are really bad. But I don't know that we're to this point where every intention and thought of mankind's heart is evil yet, right? So that uh, hopefully is good news for us, right? But when God's heart is grieved, that's when he takes action because everything is evil. Concepts like this, I think, are hard for us, just to be honest. I mean, we started out talking about destruction and judgment and those kinds of things. And those are not stories, typically, that we like to talk about in church anymore. Um, Our modern sensibilities, well, you know, Pastor Bill, I don't know that God's mean, (laughs) right? You know? I mean, right, you know, it's like we, we have this sense, but even this idea of God choosing to wipe out people might seem unfair to us. In fact, when people are critical of scripture, these are often the things that they will point to. It's like, well, how can a loving God just decide that he's gonna wipe people out? How is that? When we see things like this and they seem unfair, I think we have to remember a few things. And here's one of them. God is the objective standard of right and wrong because he is the only observer that's outside our subjective relativism. So here's what that means. We are mired in this world and the way that we see this world is shaped by what we're surrounded with. It's shaped by sin. It's shaped by all the other things that play into our decisions. Uh, A man's ways seem right to him, right? That's what scripture says. But God's ways are completely different and he is a holy observer that's outside of this whole thing. He can see it all. He can see the future. He can see the past. He sees it all as one landscape and only he knows knows the truth in that situation. Our scope and our view is limited by our perception and our position. But God not only sets the standard, he clearly defines his expectations as well. So therefore, if God says something is wrong, it's wrong. If he says something is wicked, then it's wicked. We don't get a vote and that's what we don't like, right? We want to have some say in it. We want to say, oh, well, you know, maybe this isn't so bad. But the truth of the matter is, we don't get a vote because he's the only one that's outside of it all. And here's the second thing. God's grace is evident even in his acts of judgment. We're going to learn that Noah's little boat project (laughs) takes 120 years to complete, roughly, right? Giving people ample time within that time frame, right, to turn away from sin and to turn towards God. And we'll see this as the story progresses. And so, The Lord saw the earth. He notices that there's one man that stands above the rest, Noah, who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God noticed, he valued, and he rewarded Noah's righteousness. 
This should also be an encouragement to us because sin is still a serious matter to God and God definitely recognizes the sinfulness of people, but he also notices the people that are living for him. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way, does it, right? We're walking this earth and we're trying to do our thing and we're trying to make good decisions and lots of times as a Christian, you have to make decisions that uh, maybe don't make a whole lot of sense to the rest of the world and sometimes you can make decisions even at work or whatever uh, where it gets you maybe even in trouble or maybe you have to quit a job or maybe you have to do something differently or live differently because what God's calling you to do is different than the standard that you're surrounded by. In those moments, it almost feels like God doesn't see, doesn't it? It's like, God, are you even paying attention? Why is this happening to me? I'm trying to live for you. I'm making these choices and it doesn't seem to be working. And I would suggest to you that he does see, he does care and that his timing in those situations is different sometimes than what we would like or hope for it to be. But I would also like to say that even as God is watching and he recognizes sinfulness in people, it's not like he's waiting around with a lightning bolt just waiting for you. Oh, do it, please do it, please do it, please do it. That's not the God that we serve. His intention for us is hope and love. He created us to love and worship him. God wants only good things for us and he knows that the good things that he wants for us are found in him alone. And so he also notices when we choose his way as well. So later in Noah's story, we're gonna learn that Noah has some serious flaws, right? For uh, him being the guy that God sees and regards, some weird things happen later on. But the point of the story isn't the perfection of people or even the righteousness of people. The point of the story is the mercy of God and how he extends that to all of us. And so the earth has grown increasingly corrupt. God will judge, but he's also merciful and he provides a way, and that's always the case. God preserves Noah by asking for his obedience. And so just the thumbnail version, God tells Noah to build a very big boat, a very big boat. Building a huge boat in the middle of the desert would be kind of a wild thing for someone to suggest, wouldn't it? And if you've seen Evan Almighty, you know the problems that can, re- that can occur as a result of that, right? It's pretty weird. And I'm not sure that Evan Almighty is completely true. But I think some of the things that he felt and thought definitely are true. And so God tells him to build this huge, huge boat. It takes 120 years. But I would point out that that's 120 years of mercy. It's a long time giving people the opportunity to repent. And repent means to turn away from the way you're living It's different than changing your mind. It's actually changing your life. And so then came the animals, then came the floods, and everything on the earth was destroyed except the creatures on the boat. Okay, like I said, it was the thumbnail version. Um, (laughs) Do you really want me to go through all 120 days today? I don't think you do. So anyway, animals come in, the floods come in, everything on the earth was destroyed except for the creatures on the boat. And when it was all over, and this is important, Noah recommits himself and his family and the freshly laundered earth, right, to follow the creator again. And as a result, we're all here. We're all descendants of Noah's family. If you've ever done one of those genetics things and it shows you that you're like a 0.01% of some thing way over here, that's Noah's family that is telling you you were once a part of. Okay, so God has shown us mercy and he's shown us compassion. Uh, in some ways, there are many things in the story I don't have time to get into that are foreshadowing for this, but through his son, through Jesus, right? compassion through our savior whose life his death and his resurrection fulfilled the promise of overcoming sin and death the sin and death that threatened uh, even Noah and his family uh, in this moment and his goal is to bring us near to God once again that's what he wants that's his desire God just wants to be with his people that's his heart's desire 
And so the lessons of this story, as morbid as this story may be in some ways, I believe are still true for us today. And so I just want to hit three of these. We're almost done. Sin still matters to God. And I think this is one we don't talk about in the church very often, but it's still true. Just because we love Jesus and we follow Jesus, the the choices that we make with our lives are still important to God. He still loves us and wants best for us and his way is always best. The second thing we need to remember is that God maintains order in the world and God can also undo the order that he has established, right? Remember, we don't get a vote in that. He is the only one that's outside. He's the outside observer. He can see it all, how it's laid out. And so therefore, he is the only one. He sets the order and he can also (laughs) remove it if he chooses to. But here's the big one. Our day-to-day lives reflect what we really believe when it comes to following Jesus. The way that we walk our lives out truly preach and show people what we believe. Uh, I think it's great what was said earlier, right? It's like, if you're just living your life on a Sunday and then the rest of your world, even if you're a great person and you love Jesus and all that stuff, but it's not demonstrated in your relationships, if it's not demonstrated in your workplace, if it's not demonstrated in the way uh, you interact with other people, then I would suggest that it might be reflecting, your life might be reflecting something different uh, than what you hope it would. And so, We often talk about our calling, right? Our calling is this big idea, this big thing, this uh, huge, you know, okay, when I finally figure out what my calling is, I'm really gonna go for it when it comes to God. And so we know, right, Noah has this calling and it's building this huge boat to preserve future generations for God. And so I think we even do this. Like we look through the Bible and we think to ourselves, well, you know what? God's gonna give me one of those. God's gonna give me an ark or he's gonna give me this thing that he wants me to do. And it's gonna be this life-consuming vision that will give me purpose and direction finally because I don't have that. And it will completely satisfy every longing that I have. He may give you that life project. That's possible. That life project may be your marriage. I don't know, but listen, He's already provided this grant. That was supposed to be a joke. You guys aren't laughing. Okay, there we go. I wasn't serious about that. I'm her life project. That's what's up. So he's already provided a grand vision for your life. He's already provided the grand vision for my life. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's already laid that down for you. Noah was viewed as blameless, not because he was able to follow all of God's blueprints and make a life draft as it was like three stories tall. That's not what was happening here. Noah was viewed as blameless before any of that happened. Why? Because he got up every day and he put on his robes just like the rest of us. Okay, pants maybe in our case, but nonetheless. He got up, he got dressed, he put one foot in front of the other because his longing was to walk with God especially in the midst of this world where everyone else was walking like this, the other direction. So this is the world and this is Noah. Walking the opposite direction of everyone else. And God noticed that. God saw that. Living out his faith caused him to stand out in a crowd. And again, we know Noah was far from perfect. And if you follow the story after this event, I'm not getting into it today, but you can see what I mean. Some weird stuff goes down and it kind of makes you wonder when you read it, like, why was this guy chosen? Like, how did he make the cut out of everybody else? Because that's some weird stuff. And maybe there's this letdown after you wrap up your 120-year project and you're just kind of like, oh, it's time to relax. Maybe you just let it go. Or maybe it's a deal where your local shawarma place that had the great sauce is now gone and you're just upset about it. I don't know what the deal was, but whatever the case, 
Noah's role in God's story begins when he stands out from all of the constant evil thought that surrounded him. It's only then that God trusts him with the big project. And even so, it was still this opportunity for Noah, right, to live day by day. All of these small steps in his calling. I mean, do you think that you doubt your calling 20 years into building a giant boat in the middle of the desert? Do you think? How about halfway through? How about 60 years in? Like, you're still building this thing. And everything else around you seems to be going to pot. And you're like, what is going on? With no idea that you have 60 more years to go? I think you'd have some doubts. And you might say, well, that's great, but at least Noah knew his assignment. At least he knew what he was supposed to do. Well, I'm going to share this with you, and I want to say it twice because I think it's important. The single strongest indicator of what God wants you to do is your awareness of what needs to be done to make the world in your immediate vicinity more like what God intends. Let me say that again. The single strongest indicator of what God wants you to do is your awareness of what needs to be done to make the world in your immediate vicinity more like what God intends. And I kind of feel like this was said already, so this is just a repeat, right? The way that we live our lives. Today, we recognize graduates, right, that are moving into the next phase of their lives. We celebrate serving our community through the compassion of a simple idea, just a food pantry. And today we send out missionaries to share the story of how they have been rescued by Jesus. God calls each of us to bring all of who we are into all of what we do. We didn't talk, by the way. I haven't even officially met him yet. God's up to something. God calls each of us to bring all of who we are into all of what we do. Every talent, every skill, every gift that God has placed in you is not there for your glory. It's there to tell his story. Graduates, moms and dads, bosses, life-changing world leaders, the talents, the skills, all the things God's put in you, they're not there for your glory. They're there to tell his story. And so when you give your whole self over to the life and the work that God has called you to, that's what makes a difference. This isn't a thing that just pastors do or elders do or missions and outreach teams do or Sunday school teachers do or parents do. It's a calling for all followers of Jesus. And I assume that's you because you're in this room this morning. And God's given us the blueprint. We find it. It's in Ephesians, beginning with verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And okay, what in the world is Paul saying? He's like the king of the run-on sentence. Paul, what are you getting at here? Here, here's the deal. Like Noah, God offers rescue to us despite our sin. He forgives us because he's rich in grace and mercy. But here's the deal. And I feel like sometimes we live this way. Sometimes we live like God's just kind of barely letting us in. Like, okay, I'll give you the pass because you said the prayer and you seem to be trying pretty hard. So no, that's not what the scripture says. 
The scripture says he welcomes us, that he heaps grace and mercy and love upon us, lavished. That's such an amazing, beautiful word. It's like that cupcake that you buy that has like the same thickness of frosting on top of it as the cupcake itself. That's lavished. He lavishes his love upon us. His love completely covers us. It's not just a, okay, you can come in. It's a high five, man. I've been waiting for you to get here. Come here, bring it in, bro. Sis, that's the God we serve. And in this act, he also unleashes wisdom and insight in us to reveal the mystery of his will. Because we ask those questions, right? What's God's will for my life? Or how do I know if I'm in God's will? Or why isn't God revealing his will to me? His secret plan has already been revealed. And we find it in Jesus, our Messiah. God's goal continues to be relationship, bringing heaven and earth together. And that's where we find his purpose and his will. It's right here. And as we wrap this up, I want to point backward because that's what happens here, right? This is actually referring to a couple of verses that Paul wrote earlier. And I think this is probably, I mean, this encouraged me, so I hope it encourages and inspires you today. Because you need to know, and you're in this room today, or you can hear my voice, that God loves you. And not only does God love you, but he wants you. He does. He wants you. It's not just a, okay, I guess you can go. It's like, I want you here. I need you here. I love you. God has adopted you through Jesus for a purpose. And here's the reason. Verse four and five. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that means before anything happened, before the making, all the creation we've been talking about, he chose us. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love, having predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. He chose us. He adopted us. But I love that last line, according to the good pleasure of his will. That good pleasure, I think we will often read that and we apply it to ourselves, right? We say, oh man, thank goodness. To the good pleasure of his will, it's good for me. But I think there's another way to look at that. I think that good pleasure is his as well. It's his because when we accept that invitation, he's like a father. He's like that king that we talked about earlier, the father that sees his child coming to him and it melts his heart. It's like that king that sees the people in his land loving and taking care of each other. So our response to a love like that is to walk before him much like Noah, right? Standing out in the crowd, holy and blameless because we love him. Not because we're following some list of rules or these things that we feel like we have to do. These are things that we're compelled to do because we love him and we wanna live in the way that he challenges us to live and calls us to live. Would you guys bow your hearts with me? Father God, we love you and we can never say that enough. We can never tell you how thankful we are that you rescued us, that uh, even before time began, you had us in mind. And it's such a humbling thought, God, 
to know that. And to know that your invitation to us is an invitation of love and mercy and goodness and that you're just waiting to embrace us. And so, God, I just, I pray for the folks that are in this room today and whether they came in here today and they are at the top of their game with you in the sense of just they're walking with you right now and things are amazing in their relationship and the closeness and that intimacy is there or whether they're here today and maybe they're in a low point. Things are hard. Life's a struggle. They're asking questions. Why, God, why is this happening? I pray, God, that you remind us all just how much you love and care for us. And what a beautiful pleasure it can be to serve you. And when we pour out our hearts and our lives into the things that you're doing in this world, it's amazing to watch what you will do with our meager talents and those meager things that we bring and we give, how you take them and you amplify them and you change them and shape them. And as a result, you change and shape the hearts and the lives of other people in this way that we could never do in any kind of human sense. It's only through your Holy Spirit so God, my prayer today is that your Holy Spirit would just, you would just breathe that into us much like when you first created man, that you would breathe that Holy Spirit into us and that it would empower our lives, God, that it would uh, change us and shape us in such a way that we would live every moment that we have with all that we have for you. I thank you for all of the marvelous and wonderful things that we got to talk about today that you're doing uh, as a part of drawing us closer to you and your kingdom. And I just ask God that you would continue to bring uh, people here and into all the churches in Liberty that need to know who you are and need to know the truth. But I also pray God that your compassion and love and mercy would continue to flow out of those places as well. And that you would change hearts and lives as a result. And we ask all of these things in the name of your son. Amen. <laughs>